What kind of a show are you guys putting on here today? You're not interested in art? No. Now look, we're going to do this thing. We're going to have a conversation. From Chicago, this is Film Spotting. I'm Adam Kempinar. And I'm Josh Larson. So over here we have $2 million. 20 Tupperware boxes. Each box has $100,000 in $100 bills. It weighs 44 pounds. Now over here we have $2 million. 40 Tupperware boxes. Each box has $50,000 in $50 bills. It weighs 88 pounds. I feel like I'm in school. Tell me about it. So the question is... How much Tupperware would I need? Stop. No math on this show. The question is, what is 12 Years a Slave director Steve McQueen doing directing a heist thriller? A Chicago set heist thriller, to be more precise, co-written by McQueen and none other than Gone Girl's Gillian Flynn. That was Viola Davis, Michelle Rodriguez, and Elizabeth Debicki in a clip from McQueen's Widows, which opens wide next weekend. This week on the show, reviews of Widows and Paul Dano's Wildlife, the actor's directing debut starring Carey Mulligan and Jake Gyllenhaal. That and more is the answer pi r squared Tupperware. Ahead on Film Spotting. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Welcome to Film Spotting. We're recording the show a little late this week, Josh, and it's another late night as we did just come from Steve McQueen's Widows. We'll talk about that here in just a moment. It's Wednesday, the day after Election Day, and if you look at the box office lately, doing pretty good business. I don't know if people have been trying to avoid all of those candidate ads and seek some refuge at the multiplex. I wouldn't blame them. I was trying to avoid election news. This is how bad it was for me. I went to early voting, so I had gotten it out of the way. Election night, I subjected myself to a Washington Wizards basketball game just to clear my head. (laughs) There were still ads. Every ad. Really? During the break was a political ad. So I don't blame people for fleeing to the theater. Well, a lot of them went to see the Queen biopic, Bohemian Rhapsody, even though critics pretty much hated it. It did surpass box office expectations. Those nasty critical reviews didn't keep me or my wife away either. I will have some thoughts on Bohemian Rhapsody a bit later in the show. We both also caught up with Wildlife. It is the directing debut of actor Paul Dano, and it stars the great Carey Mulligan, along with Jake Gyllenhaal. But first, we're getting a jump on the year-end rush of big releases with an early review of Widows. My husband left me the plans for his next job. All I need is a crew to pull it off. Why should we trust you anyway? Because I'm the only one standing between you and a bullet in your head. That's what I've learned from men like your late husband and my father. Is that you reap what you sow. Let's hope so. Josh, back in January when we did our top five questions of the 2018 movie year, I asked, which female-led heist octet ensemble will we most want to see get away with it, Ocean's 8 or Widows? And yes, I was including in that octet on the Widows side some of the men who do populate the cast of Steve McQueen's Widows, but this is undoubtedly a female-driven film. I did not ever see Ocean's 8. So I can't answer that question. Maybe you can give us the short answer here in just a little bit. It was certainly one of my most anticipated movies of the year overall. 
for a variety of reasons. I think you were excited as well. Certainly the pedigree of Steve McQueen, the director of 12 Years a Slave, Shame, and my favorite film of his, Hunger. Gillian Flynn, I know I like Gone Girl more than you. I think probably a lot more than you, but I was curious to see the fruits of that collaboration on the screenplay between Flynn and McQueen. And for whatever reason, we Chicagoans seem to love seeing our city depicted on screen. And this movie is in every way a Chicago movie, not just in the locations, but it's really about so many of the things I think we identify as prototypically Chicago, even if for some that's not from any experience actually living here. It's just from seeing Chicago as it's portrayed in the movies. This is one of those movie portrayals of Chicago, and that doesn't necessarily make it a false one. But I'm going to put you in the role here of the thief who's preparing for the heist and you have your checklist of the things that have to go right in order for this to be a success what had to go right for widows to be a success did you need to see some of those steve mcqueen visual directorial flourishes did you need to see some unconventional choices for a heist movie or simply see a satisfying heist movie with a great central heist scene Or maybe it was the performances you were most excited about. Viola Davis leading the cast here, along with Michelle Rodriguez, Elizabeth Debicki, and Cynthia Erivo. Three of them have lost their husbands in an armed robbery attempt that we see at the very beginning of the film that goes wrong. And the four women, despite not knowing each other previously, do come together to stage a heist of their own. Not really by choice so much as for survival. So did Widows deliver on any of those counts, all of those counts? Well, going in at the top of my list was Steve McQueen's presence. That was what I was most interested in. As with you, I think he's one of the most exciting working filmmakers today. And so I wanted to see what he would bring to a genre picture. I mean, none of his other movies really could be classified in that way. And I was excited to see the distinctions that he would bring. I think you get a handful of them here that we will talk about. Uh, The cast, yes, would probably be second on that list of mine. And I definitely want to talk about what we think this movie does or maybe doesn't quite do with the cast. You mentioned Ocean's 8. And I will say, just as it was unfair to compare Ocean's 8 entirely through the lens of Ocean's 11, though maybe a bit inevitable, it's also unfair to compare Widows entirely through the lens of Ocean's 8. But <laughs> I can only imagine. <laughs> but <laughs> it's interesting how they each do something better than the other. And if you added them up, we probably would have had a really good woman-driven heist film in okay, 2018. Do tell. Uh, for me, Ocean's 8 had a sleek efficiency. It was more of a commercial product, even though Widows is a genre film. Uh, And the plot, you mentioned that heist, that it goes off like clockwork. Is that one of the things you want? You get all of those things in Ocean's 8. It it just moves. It doesn't move as smoothly as Ocean's 11, to make another comparison, but it does move. Uh, And I appreciated that about it. I also appreciated the chemistry that you had in Ocean's 8, particularly between Sandra Bullock, Kate Blanchett, and really the whole cast. You know, they had that going. Again, not as much as the guys in Ocean's 11, but they had some of it. Uh, I think Widows is missing both of those things. Hmm. Uh, Really strong cast, but I don't know if it ever gets them all on the same page. Uh, Also, the plot mechanics, and there is a ton of plot in Widows. We were trying to just hash out 
you know, after the film on our way over here to the studio, where we thought things landed, just to kind of get a, a base of understanding for this conversation. And I don't know that we entirely did. So no, there are... I blame myself, not McQueen and Flynn. Well, of course, that's why we were doing the work. We were yeah. saying like, now, did this mean this? Did that mean that? And maybe at the end of the day, this is a possibility too, because there are a lot of politics and uh, cultural conflict going on here. Maybe you could say to be generous that... All those misunderstandings are on purpose because this depicts a city that is a corrupt mess. Mm -hmm. And so we're not supposed to make sense of it. Okay, that's the generous reading. It was intentionally confounding, but it was confounding for me. So I'm really mixed. I'm left mostly excited about a few signature touches that McQueen brings to it before I highlight those. Let me hear what you made of it. Yeah, I liked it a lot more than you and... It's funny because I didn't see Ocean's 8, so I can't compare them at all. But surely this film has so much more on its mind. And I think it does a really good job of exploring all of those things. We may touch on a few of the specific ideas here, but already you've talked about the sense of corruption and the way that those abuses of power do find their way into every aspect of this film. No, it's not going to be the sleek, efficient kind of thrill ride that something like Ocean's 8 probably was trying to be, but I still found it overall to be a really tight film. And what I mean is, even though I can't quite piece together who exactly stole from who and who was trying to get it back or do what with it, that's only really because there's an element, there is a twist, a surprise element that is introduced about halfway through that then kind of throws everything on its head. But for the bulk of this film's running time, I was never questioning what any character was after or why. And what I mean by being tight, and I would say even efficient in its own way, is I never felt like any scenes were wasted in this film. They are all about serving some aspect of the plot or developing character or setting up some future scene that is going to be very crucial to the plot or some aspect of the characters. And you know what I really enjoyed about it, too, and we can talk about this in terms of what I think the film I suppose, is really ultimately about. I just like watching these people, these really smart people, and I'm not necessarily referring to them as smart in terms of their IQ or their education, but characters who know the world they live in and understand the terms of that world, and we get so many scenes that are about that kind of gamesmanship, just conversations like the one we see very early in the film between Colin Farrell, who plays someone running for an alderman position that for decades was held by his father, who's played by Robert Duvall in the film. And he goes to meet his challenger for that seat, Brian Tyree Henry, the actor so good in Atlanta and so good here. And that banter and that back and forth between them, I thought was really thrilling. I think the biggest thrills in the film actually come out of a lot of those types of conversations, whether it's between father and son, Duvall and Farrell, or Viola Davis with any number of other people that she's talking to as she's trying to navigate this world that she's now thrown herself into. I guess that was a little bit of a surprise for me that I enjoyed the conversations in this film as much as any visual aspect of it. Yeah, except think about that long extended conversation in, in Hunger that's so compelling oh, sure. uh, from McQueen. I, I think yeah. he, he likes setting up these scenarios and letting the actors just go to work in mm-hmm. them. And I, probably the best scenes 
for me on that front are the Duval and Farrell ones. I mean, I could have watched them go at each other. There's this animosity between father and son, even as father is trying to guide and help his son. And you you come to learn it's mostly out of legacy concerns, not any sort of fatherly concerns. But man, the hatred that you can sense between them. Mm-hmm. And uh, those, are, those are really strong. I think the best scenes in this movie are the behind closed doors where you see how corrupt politics actually yeah, works. And no, no one's even pretending to do good mm-hmm. in most of the scenes in this movie. They, cards are they're all being on the themselves. table. They're being themselves. And, and um, they're just letting that corruption hang there. And it's, it's compelling. It's like distressing and compelling at the same time. A lot of this also struck me as it was almost like watching an old-fashioned Warner Brothers gangster drama, but just in a contemporary setting. Mm. It had that sense of of stakes and, uh, again, political intrigue at the same time and the violence, too. And I think Farrell is almost like doing it, especially at the beginning, a James Cagney for a little while there until you adjust to his rhythms. But, yeah, I thought those those were compelling scenes. I think I have to disagree a little bit on – and I can't believe I'm saying this – the moments with Viola Davis's character, the movie, and it's clearly not her. She has some like knockout sequences in this movie where she brings that emotion like suddenly to the surface in such a forceful way that she can do. But Veronica, who really is the main character in the film, Liam Neeson's wife, who is kind of left adrift with his death, we never get a sense. I ne- I never get a sense of whether she is this naive, helpless woman who grows into this part as the mastermind, or if she always had this latent in her and she knew more about her husband than she let on, um, or if from the very beginning she's just always been a badass. And I say that because— I don't feel like she's ever really a badass in this film. But you— Oh, they no. definitely play that for certain scenes. She has very maybe, confrontational maybe a few moments. moments. The first one, Adam, this is why it's so confusing is because it's not a transformation. It's not a journey for her character. One of the first things we see is a flashback with her and Neeson. And these are beautifully filmed moments, these mm-hmm. flashback sequences of them in their apartment. Very tender, very intimate. One of them is when he's getting out of the shower. She pours a shot of whiskey or something for him, hands it to him. And we already know he's this tough criminal macho mm-hmm. guy. And takes it back and downs it. That's just a little character beat that tells you, okay, she's not just, you know, the docile wife who stays at home. She's got a little grit to her. But there will be other scenes where she's played as the naive, wealthy wife who has never come down from her condo where she overlooks the lake. And now she's in the midst of all these criminals and doesn't know what's going on. Two scenes later, she's spitting out, you buy three Glocks and this round and this. Only because it was in his notebook. And it was spelled out for yeah, her. But it's she didn't way, know it otherwise. But she didn't have a clue it's otherwise. It's the way she's delivering these things. There's no trajectory here from a woman. What I wanted to get, and that one scene where she goes to their hideout, her, her husband's gang's hideout, and uh, she notices his gloves. She has this dog with her throughout a lot of the movie. The dog smells on his jacket him. And it, it's this really meaningful, sad moment. And I thought, yeah, this movie – is it going to become where she grows into her husband's role? And I think it wants to be in a way, mm. but it just keeps going back and forth. I love that it didn't go there. Forth, love it. But I, I love the back and forth. I think that's the beauty of the film. It's not consistent. It's no, not a consistent character. Because we're not consistent. Well, no. No, no. A hundred percent. It's not yeah. showing her as being – it's not showing her as – 
being conflicted no, it, or mixed. It shows it's her as giving being human. Very particular scenes where she's a badass, and very particular scenes where she's lost. Which I believe, as someone who, yes, hundred percent, she's someone who we understand in her past life was the head of the teachers' union, or she worked for the teachers' union and was a power player. So she's formerly been a very formidable presence in a lot of these political scenes, and she understands how this world works. But we also know from these flashbacks that she gave that up a long time ago because she compromised and she decided that she was going to be that wife up in that ivory tower and she was going to be able to live with the fact apparently that her husband was a criminal and he was bringing in the money and she was going to live with that sense of denial so for me i think that's just a fully human portrayal and performance and i love how at times strong and forceful she is and then other times Sometimes within the same beat, we see actually how fragile she is and how actually a lot of those moments where she's trying to act so tough, she's barely holding it together. I loved that part. Yeah, I I guess I didn't see the same conflict in the same scenes. I I saw two sides of a coin that kept flipping. And I would also say this is a through line issue with the other two main characters, both Debicki's character and Michelle Rodriguez's character. Uh, in the case of Debicki, this is a woman who she flips and flops between being somewhat ditzy to being a con woman. Mm, I think she has the most clear her, trajectory. To being quick on She's her got her the feet. best trajectory in the film. No, no. She's got the clearest change. She the goes most back and subtle, forth as well. And I, I would don't think also so. Say subtle that, shifts. I would also say that Michelle... Rodriguez, who we know as, you know, routinely plays very tough, aggressive, physical women. Um, Here we get that in some points. And then all of a sudden we'll get a point where she seems scared and frightened. But then all of a sudden she'll be the one who says, well, neither of you you know what prison is like. Because there has to be a foundation for a character. And they can grow from that. And they can vacillate from that. But we have to have a foundation for, okay, this is who they are now. And when the rug keeps getting pulled out from us, the other thing that it does affect is the camaraderie among the three. Because they never individually are rooted in a place where we understand as as people who have different experiences and can respond in different ways, but are as people, then they never really connect as a trio. There's a very awkward scene where Viola Davis slaps Elizabeth Debicki. It's a great scene. And that goes back and forth. And it's not rooted in any sort of relationship that the movie has been able to establish among them. So mm. this isn't a fatal flaw. I don't no. want to <laughs> overblow this, but it's one of the things that I think really did hold me back from embracing the movie more. Yeah, I didn't see those as inconsistency in the characters. And I totally believed them in that moment and that power dynamic between them. That's that's really what the whole film is about. And I think Michelle Rodriguez absolutely can Consistent from the way we meet her early on, that she understands this world a little bit differently. She comes from a different world than Elizabeth Debicki and Viola Davis both come from. So when she says, I know what it's like to spend time in jail or what the consequences of this act could be, I believed that. I didn't see that as something that was in contrast with how she was otherwise portraying herself. And I think what it all kind of came back to for me, Josh, is that it really isn't a heist movie. We keep talking about it as a heist movie, and that's how it's being sold, of course. And I get that. It does lead up to a heist. There is a heist scene. But it's clearly not what the film is the most concerned with, right? The actual job, and in some ways, even if you really break it down, the preparation for the job, those scenes don't occupy as much of the running time as one might think. I feel like we spend a lot more time here on the responsibilities These women bear the emotional burden these women are carrying and the difficult choices they have to make. It's really a film about power. And I think that that 
is a through line in a lot of McQueen's work. I'm not sure I can completely tie it back to shame, at least right now, without thinking about it more, but obviously hunger and 12 years a slave. These transactions of power, the compromises that accompany those transactions, and those compromises might be political, they might be professional, or they are personal sometimes. Just think about how many scenes we get in this movie where we watch characters have to make those kind of choices. These little arcs just in the midst of a three-minute conversation where they have to decide whether or not they're going to take whatever's being imposed on them, whether they're going to give it back, or whether or not they're going to somehow rationalize what they're being given, or they're going to deny it completely. That denial is really the essence of Veronica's character. As I said, too, she made that decision at some point to be married to a criminal, and she lives in a little bit of a, a state of ignorance that she is clearly now having to reckon with. And I do really love the way McQueen captures those power struggles. We talked about how good those conversation scenes are, but I was always aware of how the characters are positioned in relation to each other, how close they are. Are they being intimidating? Are they being intimidated? Elizabeth Debicki, in particular, she's this giant character. She's so much taller than everyone else in the film, even the male characters, except maybe Liam Neeson, who she's never on screen with. And What happens then when she is in these kind of confrontation scenes or these conversation scenes with others, you are keenly aware of the clash of her size with her lack of power within a given scene. But then other times you actually see, I wouldn't argue that she's using her size, but then we notice that little shift and how she's not afraid in a certain moment and everything about her stature and how McQueen shoots her in those scenes shifts. You're definitely right that it's less interested in the heist than I would say, the way I would describe it, the contours of a city when it's operating at its worst. Um, and there, there's really no one here that you can, we maybe sympathize with some of the situations they find themselves in, but really there's no one here who you could point to and say like, uh, that person is a, you know, is a potential hero for the city or that's, that's someone that no. you, you would admire for how a city should function. I mean, th- these are all the people who are um, working a scam of some sort or another uh, at the cost of just everyday yeah. residents. And that is what the film is deeply interested in. It's also what is uh, evident in maybe my favorite shot. Um, and this is a car riding scene. Mm-hmm. Again, it involves Colin Farrell. And he's being driven um, in, uh, it's not really a limo, but a town car, something like that, with his assistant. They're having this conversation uh, about a press event they had just come from, and he's just really mad. Uh, The camera is on the hood, but sort of looking off to the side as the car is Mm -hmm. moving. So it's facing the windshield, but we're also taking in half of the car windshield and half of the neighborhood. And again, Farrell's alderman, or hopeful alderman, is in this neighborhood that's transformed. The demographics have transformed. His family are among the holdouts and they milk their political power by acting like they want to revitalize this neighborhood when they're really also just exploiting it. His press event is at a more rundown area of the city where he's talked about how he's going to revitalize it. He gets in his car, goes on this racist tirade to his assistant. The camera pans across the windshield to just calmly notice that The driver is African-American who can clearly hear them and then pans over to the other side of the street. Maybe two minutes, would you say, this scene goes on? It's a single take. And by the time the conversation is done, they've pulled up to Colin Farrell's house, which is one of these last Mm -hmm. standing mansions. And just the way – I mean, one thing that this movie does get right about Chicago is the segregation among neighborhoods where you can go just a few blocks and it's like you're in another country – 
And he captures that with one brilliant single take shot. So that's like that's the sort of McQueen thing where I see that and um, I'm all on board with yeah, the movie. Just that's the that bravura alone. moment yeah. in the film. And I think that it's one that is really fully utilizing what a long take can be because long takes are all about time and space. Right. And just in that moment, you said going from one part of Chicago to the other. Of course, that's true. But even more specifically, it's really just going from one part of a particular neighborhood, yeah. I think, to another part of that neighborhood. It's alluded to earlier that, you know, he lives in it's the, the district ward. he supports. It's the same ward, but it's a very different part of that ward. So that's really an amazing moment. And I actually do want to ask you about that because I think as you were talking about how everyone is at their worst here. And I think that's really true. And there's some scam or some angle everyone's playing. I think there are some interesting ways that McQueen and Flynn play with our perceptions too, where we immediately have a certain mindset about a character that then the rug is pulled out from under us a little bit. It happens in that first scene with Farrell and Tyree Henry, where we know that Farrell is the smug politician who's going into the basement of a church to talk to the community leader. We read that scene a certain way, and we are completely on his side. We're on Manning's side. That's the character. Tyree name. Henry's character. Exactly. Yeah. And then, of course, as soon as he leaves and he starts to have a conversation with Daniel Kaluuya, who is his henchman and a really good, really terrifying henchman yeah, here, I think. He's really scary. Just those dead eyes are really effective here. When we see the true nature of who Manning is and what he believes in, then we realized that we had to rethink everything we previously believed. And to an extent, again, I would have to see it again to argue this. I really am asking more than anything. Do you think even there was a bit of that going on with the Colin Farrell character? Because you do see a number of times where he's in direct conflict with his hyper undeniably racist old man father yeah. and the certain way of doing business that Farrell is caught up in. He's part of the system, but he laments multiple times how he would like to get out of it. And what I'm saying is not that he's not an oppressor, not that he's not racist himself, because there are moments, but it started to make me think because of a couple key scenes. I really wondered if my perception of the old man was actually being then also put on him to an extent. Does he say some of the blatantly racist things we hear his father say, or do we actually come to see him as someone, I wouldn't say who is more heroic, he's absolutely not, but a little bit more complex than we think he is at the beginning. Yeah, no, I thought about that too, because like you, I, you know, I want to give the benefit of the doubt to the film, and I was trying to figure that out, but I, I do think that it's a screenplay issue that, that's somewhat also related to a character issue for Farrell's character. And, and the two examples I would give, one we talked about, his tirade in the car, that's, that just comes out from him forcefully. That Like, he's not playing a part there. You know what I mean? But does um, he use in that scene, honestly, and I remember the thing he asks his associate who, is that his wife as well? Or is that just his associate? I never I really figured that associate. out. But there's a question he asks her that, of course, we can decry as racist, but I don't think he uses the same type of terminology that he he throws out a more kind of like, what is the point of all this? No, he, it's it's more specific. Is it? That. Yeah, it's more okay. specifically racist. And that's why the camera pans to the driver. But it's interesting and that it's, it's that fight. No, there's no, there's no doubt. I, yeah. It's a point of irony. But I guess what I'm trying to say is 
is there some distinction we come to see in him when he says to his father at some point late in I the film? I know that conversation, yeah. I, and I you're, don't know you're why. You're saying it's a screenplay issue, and I'm wondering if if actually it's it's a nuanced thing that I appreciate about the film. I'd have to go back and watch well, it Well, let again. me give you the other example why I figured it probably isn't is the sequence in the hair salon where the woman has said she was able to start this business because of a grant from Farrell's family. Mm-hmm. They're, they're revitalizing the neighborhood. This is part of their push. But then she also tells the woman, yeah, but it involves kickbacks to the very same family. And so... Yeah, but that's a systemic thing. That's not but him he's just... But he's the one doing it. It was his agreed. driver who collected the money. So he's actively involved. No, so I don't think I said he's he's an oppressor. I there's don't think no there's doubt about it. like... Inner, I think the inner conflict for him is more just wanting to get out of the rot. And the dad's, you know, Duval gives that really terrifying speech about we're just trying to survive yeah. is kind of his, sure. you know, make America great again moment. And when Farrell hears that, he he just he just wants to get out of there. So maybe yeah. there's a little bit of nuance there, but uh, I don't think he's sort of that becoming woke character. No, that, that and, speech and, that speech sort of implies, though. Yeah, the, no, that's not what I at all took away from it, actually. But we really can't get into it more without getting into too many specifics here, unfortunately. And actually, that's going to catch me up a little bit as I try to detail an issue I did have with the film. And I wonder how you felt, Josh. It hasn't been mentioned yet. But for me, the the real lone screenplay structural mistake here, I suppose, is that there is an emotional element to the relationship between Viola Davis and Liam Neeson as her husband that ends up being not just backdrop for all of this, but ends up being part of the plot, if that makes sense. It's actually something that is driving a lot of choices characters make, but it's not introduced until at least halfway through the film. And when it is introduced, I think it's pretty clumsily handled. Are you referring to their son? Let's just say that. That's not a spoiler. Yeah. Okay. Yes, I would agree. And I would also say that when we find out the resolution, let's just say, of... Their son's story, uh-huh. I think, again, we can't spoil anything. I'm just going to say, especially given recent actual political history here in Chicago involving an issue like that, it comes off as really trite. That's maybe just bad timing, but I think to your point as well, like within the structure of the movie, it doesn't entirely work. Let's flip to another positive, at least for me, though, and that is the opening of this film, uh, which really artfully cuts back and forth among that heist that Liam Neeson and his crew are conducting in this van. It's really just a getaway. We're in the midst of the getaway at this point. And some of these flashbacks of Davis and Neeson together in their condo, which again, I think are just beautifully handled. And it's cross-cutting. It's cross-cutting. To other characters too. Yes. And then they interweave the other two, Mm -hmm. Michelle Rodriguez and Elizabeth Debicki. I I thought that was a great sequence. And I especially liked, here's another thing where I was excited about Carrie Coon and her husband as well. Yes. She's included uh, the fourth uh, person who is part of that gang. This is what I was excited about with McQueen taking on genre is what's Steve McQueen going to do with a car chase, you know? And the choice is to film it. To not it. have one, really. To, to not, well, there is one, but it's all filmed from a fixed position inside right. the getaway van, looking out the back doors that have kind of been blown open. And so what does that do? For me, it made everything that you see out of those doors feel 
10 times more real than if we had had a traditional cross-cutting, different angles, cameras all over the place, car chase, because you, your bearing, you only have one bearing. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's what you can see out that door. And when a car, a cop car is chasing them and gets hit by another car that happens to come out of nowhere, it, it just, none of it feels choreographed. True. Does that make sense? Because yeah. the camera is just there. No, it, it feels so like you're there with them. Maybe a simple choice, but a really effective one. And then to intercut with those flashbacks is is really artful as well. So the movie really gets off to mm-hmm. off to a, a bang. Widows opens in wide release next weekend. That's November 16th. If you see it and agree or disagree with our takes, you can email us feedback at filmspotting.net. Emboldened by the women of Widows, Adam and I take things into our own hands and perform a scene for Massacre Theater next. Plus, our review of Wildlife, and Adam shares a few thoughts on Bohemian Rhapsody. He just couldn't keep away. Stay with us. She keeps them away, Shonda, in a pretty cabinet. Let them eat cakes, she says, just like Marie Antoinette. A building a remedy for Christophe and Kennedy. And at a time of invitation, you can't take Caviar, cigarettes, well-busted etiquette. Extraordinarily nice. She's a killer queen. I mean, one note that I'd gotten at a Cartemquin screening was when I first was trying to put myself in the film, it's like, we want the same vulnerability that Kier and Zach are giving. You know, that's what's going to make us care. But how do you do that? You know, how do you like look in a mirror and like be vulnerable to yourself? And so that's what that second camera was for. That's Bing Liu, director of Minding the Gap, one of our favorite films of the year so far. Liu there discussing one of the film's more memorable scenes when he confronts his mother about a traumatic event that happened in their past. Minding the Gap is not just one of the best films of the year. It's also on the shortlist for this year's Film Spotting Golden Brick Award, our favorite underseen movie of the year. You can hear my conversation with Bing Liu and also with his editor, Joshua Altman, and one of the producers of of the film from Cartemquin here in Chicago. Diane Kwan, next week when we talk through our 2018 Golden Brick candidates. And that Q&A was part of the movie's premiere here in Chicago at the Gene Siskel Film Center. I was very excited and honored to be asked to moderate that Q&A, which lasted, I think, about a half an hour. And we're going to have that whole conversation for you next week on the show. That exchange, actually, that particular part of the conversation was maybe my favorite bit from the entire Q&A, where we really heard Bing Liu talk about having to navigate being both the director of this documentary and a character within it. Yeah, it's something he gave a lot of thought to, not something he knew right from the start, right, that he was going to do. And I also liked about that interview people hear next week, but uh, hearing an editor kind of get that vantage point. Sure. You know, we hear from a lot of directors who are also screenwriters and actors as well, but getting an editor's take was was really interesting. So you will hear that entire Q&A next week along with our nominees so far for The Golden Brick. You can see that list over at filmspotting.net if you click on lists. If you click on events over at filmspotting.net, you can see our opportunities to win advanced screening, and sometimes run of engagement passes. One we have up right now, the screenings Tuesday, November 13th, 
the latest from Jason Reitman called The Front Runner about Gary Hart. I hope everyone isn't all electioned out at this point. We're going to go back to his campaign for president back in 1987 and how that ended in scandal. Hugh Jackman playing Gary Hart. Vera Farmiga also stars along with J.K. Simmons and Alfred Molina. So a very good cast in a movie I am kind of excited to see. It opens on November 16th. The film spotting newsletter, Adam, is already up to issue number six. Sam has been churning these out, and this time listeners will weigh in on the top five that we skipped. We didn't end up doing top five biopic concert scenes. Uh, We thought about that with Bohemian Rhapsody, of course, which we're going to get your thoughts on pretty soon here. The Film Spotting newsletter, you can subscribe to that. It goes out every Monday around noon. You can do that by going to filmspotting.net and it's either right there on the main page, just put in your email address and click submit, or you can go to our episodes page and it's right there at the top. Do we have a little time for a meetup report? You want to hear how awesome I've went? been dying to hear, but rather than bug you about it, I haven't even looked at the credit card bill yet, so I don't know <laughs> the damage. But rather than ask you, I knew you were going to share it with the world. So yeah, the, let's hear it. And not too much damage. It was reasonable. I would say we did have about 20 people. So it was a little bit less than Seattle. Seattle still stands, I believe, in terms of turnout and credit card bill. So. Okay. Rest easy. We were, man, beautiful outdoor spot. It, it's really getting cold here in Chicago, but Austin, it was just gorgeous. I enjoyed some delicious Namura double IPA and gifts, Adam. People brought gifts. Really? I've got something for you here. Anthony Gibson. Here, I'm going to grab it. I you love see, it. You didn't I love this. it. A this pair is great of, radio. A pair of hats. Yours, you can, uh, you can uh, tell the listeners what it says there on the front. It says... Tacos. Yes, it does. And it's I, a nice hat. I love tacos. It'll look better without the, uh, without the, the headphones. headphones. Breakfast tacos, man, they're everywhere in Austin. Let me guess. It's, in Austin, they're pretty tasty. It's br- Why don't we do that here? Like coffee know. shops, everywhere you go, you can get a breakfast taco. So I had my fair share. Overall, I was in there like one full day. And it wasn't enough. I could have just spent a week eating. So I definitely want to go back. All right, more gifts. You know Julio Oliveira from Mm -hmm. the Contrarians podcast. He was there. He gave us, we got to share this one because it was so hard to find. A subtitled subtitled DVD of a place in the world. This is an Argentine film. And he said that, yeah, it couldn't have even been part of our new Argentine cinema marathon because listeners wouldn't be able to find copies of it. It's that rare. So we... We'll have to share this one and take a look at it. I also got a note when I got home from a listener who was at the meetup, Will Kulka, thought I'd share it here. I had a really fun time and made some new friends. Your show is so much greater than just a podcast. There's a special camaraderie in the film community that can't be found elsewhere. Thank you both for continuing to support and grow that community. Please come visit again. And that was really cool. When when there's that many Mm -hmm. people... Everyone just kind of, you know, separates into smaller groups as conversations grow. And, yeah, they meet new friends who live in the area, who love movies. And it's just always cool to see that happen. That's great. Now, I did tweet out a picture or I retweeted your picture of the event. And, of course, I had to make a joke about how clearly the meetup was directed by Richard Linklater. I'm positive. I'm positive that there were red Solo cups and a keg just <laughs> no, outside of the frame, no. and the Tuesday's Gone was blaring. That's what it looked like. This was a classy place, Adam. Everyone was drinking from a nice glass. Okay. D- different shapes for the different beers. I mean, it was that kind of place. All right. 
Well, a couple other quick notes. I did make an appearance recently on the Criterion Now podcast. And of course, I always make this hard on me. It's a podcast, as you may imagine, Josh, devoted to Criterion films. I, I, that, that was my guess. Yeah. And rather than have me on to talk about a film I've already seen, maybe a film I've seen multiple times, I chose a movie that I hadn't seen yet and needed an excuse to watch it. And so I went with Olivier Assayas's Cold Water from 1994, kind of his breakout international film. And it's always been tough to get. It's really been unavailable until Criterion put it out and a very close film in a lot of ways to Something in the Air, his film from 2012 that I saw here at the Chicago International Film Festival. And we talk about that and a lot more on that show. Criterioncast.com is where you can find it, though, depending on when you're listening, it might not be up yet. I don't know the exact date that it's going up, but you can look for it there if you are curious. One more step towards being an SAS completist for you. Yeah, I've got I've got a lot longer to go. I also wanted to mention a screening for our Chicago listeners. If you're in the area, Friday, November 30th through December 6th, Cartemquin Films and the Gene Siskel Film Center are going to show 1968's Inquiring Nuns. It's the 50th anniversary, first ever Chicago theatrical release of a restored 16-millimeter print. Gordon Quinn and Jerry Tamanner, I think that's how you say it, are the co-directors of this film. And that's where you get the Quinn and the Tem in Cartemquin. They are two of the founders of that group. And they set out as filmmakers in 68 with two nuns and had them do these on-the-street interviews. Sometimes they're inside the Art Institute or they're just outside a grocery store and they go up to everybody, they meet, and they ask him a simple question, are you happy? And it's a riff on the 1960 French documentary, Chronicle of a Summer, where something similar happens, though, as I recall it, not with nuns, but people just going around and asking other people on the street, are you happy? And the answers you get as you might imagine, are illuminating. It's a movie that we watched as part of my Cinema Verite class a few years back at the University of Chicago's Graham School. Actually, Gordon Quinn came to the class to talk about the film. So I encourage people to see it if they're in the area and have a chance to go to the Gene Siskel Film Center. We will link to more info in our show notes at filmspotting.net or you can find it at siskelfilmcenter.org. Last week on the show, we reviewed the new Suspiria, and we shared our top five uses of color, and we also talked about our own favorite colors. Josh shamed me for being so basic in my appreciation for blue. Wait, that, that made blue. the show? Well, it made the outtake. You had to stick around to hear it. Oh, I was going to say. And you got Josh's favorite color, of course, so much more specific, Josh <laughs> and his forest green. <laughs> yeah, if you missed right. the outtake, now you know forest green is Josh's favorite color. That's quality content right there. (laughs) in forest green wrapping paper. This sounds like newsletter content, actually. Ask me anything. Yeah. We're just tossing this at the end of the show, wasting it. (laughs) We also had a new film spotting poll question for you. What is the best follow-up to a best picture win since 1970? We sort of arbitrarily picked that, and we decided to exclude Apocalypse Now. But That didn't stop Francis Ford Coppola from dominating the poll. Coppola's The Conversation is currently crushing all contenders. But the polls, in this case, are still open. It's Chicago. You're not going to vote early, but you can vote late and vote often over at filmspotting.net. We will share the results on next week's show. 
It is time for Massacre Theater. Right now, it's the part of the show where we perform a scene and you get a chance at winning a film spotting t-shirt. A couple weeks back, Adam and I massacred this scene. What about your agent? Did you hear anything yet? Nope. What do you think's going on? Could be anything. You've been checking your messages? Obsessively. Huh. Guess I'll just have to learn to kiss off another three years of my life. But you haven't heard anything yet. Uh, don't you think your negativity's a little premature? Hmm? All right, you know, f*** the New York publishers. Publish it yourself, Miles. I'll chip in. Just get it out there. Get it reviewed. Get it in libraries. Let the public decide. That's Thomas Hayden Church, not Nicolas Cage, as many listeners thought I was doing, alongside Paul Giamatti in 2004's Sideways. Sideways was written by Jim Taylor and Alexander Payne, based on the novel by Rex Pickett. It was directed by Payne. And that massacre was inspired by a review a few weeks back of Tamara Jenkins' Private Life. That also stars Giamatti. Also on that show, we had a review of Jeremy Sonier's Hold the Dark. As for other tie-ins, let's see what listeners suggested here, including Corey H. Corey's previously from Moscow. Now, where do you go after Moscow, Adam? Moscow, Idaho? <laughs> Is it? I don't know. I'm going to go with the real Moscow. Now Corey is in Dallas. The latest Massacre Theater sounds like the two weasels that act opposite Virginia Madsen and Alexander Payne's insufferable sideways. Whoa. Connections? Tough to say. Hold the Dark is about wolves eating people and sideways made me wish that wolves had eaten me? (laughs) According to our editor's notes, the editor being our producer, Sam, who didn't really like sideways, yes, this counts. Corey. Wow. Scott M. in Davis, California, says the film he massacred was Sideways, starring Paul Giamatti and Thomas Hayden Church as a mismatched pair of pals on the road in California's wine country. This is one of the early diner scenes, right? The principals are sitting at a table scanning their menus as the conversation takes place. Alas, the editor also chimes in here. Incorrect, Scott, Giamatti, and Church on the golf course in that scene. You didn't hear the sounds of the sprinkler in the background? That would have tipped you off. (laughs) I actually haven't caught this particular episode yet, Scott writes, and I'm not sure what the tie-ins might be, but I went back to catch your performances after listening to your brief discussion about them in the following show. This means that I had to try keeping Nicolas Cage and Adaptation out of mind while I thought about this very familiar piece of dialogue. I actually worked it out backwards, as it were, starting from Adam's portrayal of Giamatti's Miles, the blocked-up novelist and all-around downer, trying very hard not to have this conversation with Church's Jack, the gone almost deceived TV actor trying to buck up this wet blanket he's stuck with. Adam's delivery of obsessively, an illustration of Kurt frustration, was the key in, and Josh's delivery of get it reviewed (laughs) was pure church. It might also have helped that the film was set nearly in my backyard, Nearly. There you go. Lisa N. in Ayer, Massachusetts, said this week's Massacre Theater is Sideways, one of the first films of note to star Paul Giamatti as a leading man way back in 2004. Although he did star as the misanthropic but talented Harvey Picar the year before in the excellent American Splendor, Sideways is the film that really introduced the masses to Giamatti's unique talents. And this episode had a few Giamatti references. Jenkins' Private Life and Love and Mercy, which was one of the options in the film spotting poll. Giamatti played Brian Wilson's nemesis, Dr. Eugene Landy, yeah, in that one. We forgot about that one. And I'm really glad you did an episode on the newest Netflix movie options. Film delivery platforms are certainly changing, so why not embrace the change and inform your listeners of what's out there, even if these films aren't also being released in theaters first. We appreciate that feedback, Lisa, as well as the feedback we got from other listeners who did enjoy that Netflix episode. Some even pointed out that it was kind of nice to have, in a way, film spotting SVU back. Yes. 
Matt and Allison and that show. Maybe at some point while we wait, we will instead occasionally bring you episodes like that one. Josh, go ahead and reach into the film spotting hat and pick out this week's winner. Our winner comes from right here in Chicago, Tom Kosmarskis. Congratulations, Tom. Email feedback at filmspotting.net and we will set you up with your very own film spotting t-shirt. I think your dialogue is beautiful. I really do. I love it. Then why the hell don't you just stand still and say it instead of wandering all over the stage? You're supposed to be looking for your soul, not an ashtray. We move on now to this week's edition of Massacre Theater. And last time, I said with Sideways, it was a decidedly not funny voices edition. And then you gave us one of the great all-time <laughs> Larson voices, your Californians take on Thomas Hayden Church in Sideways. So this one I'm not going to set up at all. Do you think we have some funny voices here? We're going to see. We have the potential for yeah, it. Yeah, you got to do, you do. You do a little funny voicing too, I think. I think I'm ready for the challenge. Now, there is a tie-in, as always, to a topic of discussion on this week's show. And we will note we've changed the name of a key character. It would otherwise be too obvious. There's at least two references, maybe three, to that character that we have changed. And there's one other name in this one. I think we'll just cut it out. I think we can just cut that one out. It wouldn't really spoil it, but we can just lose it. It's not going to violate the integrity of the scene. Okay. You started off. Yes. I'm going to give you the action. And action. Petunia, what's been going on? I want to hear all about it. I just told you what's been going on. It's been going on for five years. You've been seeing him for five years? No, 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 not seeing. Not seeing we couldn't. But both of us loved each other all that time, didn't we? Oh, that's all. (laughs) You're crazy. I can't speak about what happened five years ago, because I didn't know Petunia then. But I'll be damned if I see how you got within a mile of her. Unless you brought the groceries to the back door. But all the rest of that is a goddamn lie. Petunia loved me when she married me and she loves me now. No, no. She does! <laughs> I, I couldn't finish the line. I'm supposed to break in there. You're supposed to break in and I'm going to say, I'm sorry, no. Okay, let's try again. Say, and she loves me now. And she loves me now. No, no. She does! I'm sorry, no. She does, though. No, 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 she does, though. And once more, I love Petunia, too. And scene. scene. It's amazing how you grew a mustache to twirl (laughs) just for this scene. That felt good. (laughs) That was like therapy. She does, though. (laughs) If you know what film we just massacred, email the movie's title along with your name and location to feedback at filmspotting.net. Your deadline. You've got a while for this one. It's Monday, December 3rd. The winner will be selected randomly from all the correct entries and announced in a couple of weeks. To get official Massacre Theater rules, visit filmspotting.net. Your crazy broke the board. It broke the board. Was it too loud? It was pretty loud. I, I tried to back up. I want to give the audience a song that they can perform. So what can they do? Imagine thousands of people doing this in unison. Huh? Well, what's the lyric? Come on, Josh. Come on, you're not doing it. This is like, uh, right now, you're immediately bringing me back to the middle school bus. <laughs> totally. <laughs> right? Like you're going to a track meet or something, something and they like start that. blasting, we will rock you. <laughs> we are the champions. Rami Malik's Freddie Mercury with Gwillem Lee's Brian May in Bohemian Rhapsody. Yes, 
I went and saw Bohemian Rhapsody. You did? Yep. I, I'm, a, I'm a sucker for biopics. I'm a sucker for music biopics. That doesn't mean I always love every music biopic that I see. I wanted so badly to come here on the show and say that all the critics yeah. and their negative reviews you to be that were just guy. so off base. Right. And I was going to make the case for Bohemian Rhapsody, but I can't. There's a scene about halfway through the film where... Malik as Freddie Mercury, he's just thrown this wild party. And then a guy who's actually working for him that night, they have a long conversation into the night and they share some of their most inner thoughts, or at least Freddie does with him. It's Jim Hutton is the man that he is talking to who does end up, we learn, becoming one of Freddie's lovers in the last part of his life. And in the scene, Jim says, so all your friends have left you alone. And Freddie says, they're not my friends, not really their distractions. Jim says, from what? He says, the in-between moments, I suppose. I find me intolerable. All of the darkness you thought you'd left behind comes creeping back in. This scene is definitely doing some heavy lifting for the screenplay, don't get me wrong, but it's also the rare in-between moment we actually get in Bohemian Rhapsody, a scene where we get something of a real glimpse of what it might have been like to be Freddie Mercury. Otherwise, Bohemian Rhapsody is made up almost entirely of contrived biopic signposts. It's a queen's greatest hits of aha moments. Mm. The things that drive me crazy in biopics, it's as if they decided to construct the entire film around them or the filmmaker sat down with a list of songs and performances and a timeline and were determined to fit every one of them in without much regard for the whole thing as a story. So we get John Deacon, the bass player, bringing the bass riff to Another One Bites the Dust to the band. And we get Brian May's Stomp, Stop, Clap of We Will Rock You. And we get Freddie Mercury working on the opening piano bit to Bohemian Rhapsody when he's just a poor 20-something. And the piano's right above his bed when he sleeps so he can twinkle on it whenever he feels like it. And it's the thing he just keeps coming back to that, of course, is going to be their big monster hit. Why did Freddie Mercury hold a mic the way he does? Well, we see the origin of that as well. The movie is just constantly winking at you as if to say, you see that or you recognize that? Yeah, of course you do. Here's another one. We're just going to keep giving them to you. I did see somewhere that one of the movie's most blatant manipulations is with the order of events at the end of the film. The way we see it, Queen breaks up, Freddie is diagnosed with AIDS, and it all culminates then with this Live Aid performance. And it's truly this powerful emotional climax, not just a powerhouse performance that was Queen's signature performance, but this act of closure and healing where he's reuniting his family and he's reckoning with his own mortality. When you see it in that order, when he's singing, I've taken my bows, and my curtain calls. You brought me fame and fortune and everything that goes with that. I thank you all. I mean, that has much more resonance, obviously, right? But of course it didn't happen that way. They hadn't broken up. He hadn't been diagnosed at that point when they played Wembley Stadium. And I normally wouldn't care or even bring this stuff up because I'm not one of those people who holds biopics accountable to the facts. Except, Josh, I always felt like I was aware of these manipulations at every turn with this movie. Scene to scene, without really knowing anything about the history of Queen, I felt like I could tick off all those moments that were manufactured for the film. It just feels that false to me. Now, what doesn't feel false is Rami Malek as Freddy and the performance and recording scenes. Whether you like Queen's music or not, they managed to produce 
as just a quartet, a towering sound, and these anthemic songs. And all three of the players were very skilled with the singer, of course, who was this transcendent talent. And the movie somehow casts actors who can actually play. Gwillem Lee as Brian, Ben Hardy as Roger Taylor, the drummer, Joseph Mazzello as John Deacon, the bass player. That authenticity in the music that is always so crucial for me with any biopic, but especially with a band that's as proficient as Queen, it's all here on display. And I'm not talking about faking it really well. Note for note, they seem to be playing these instruments live. And that goes for Malik's voice and Mercury's mannerisms and his overall performance aesthetic. On stage, he is Freddie Mercury. And that culminating Live Aid performance, it left me on such a high. I was almost willing... (laughs) to disregard all of my other criticisms about the film. It's just that powerful. And I feel like by the end of the movie, you should have a sense watching Freddie Mercury perform with Queen that you were seeing someone who was touched by God. And if you were judging the movie on that criterion alone, it absolutely succeeds. I've watched that performance on YouTube before seeing this movie and after, and it's such an exact replication that even the opening just kind of fiddling around sounds when they come out on stage and the drummer hits a couple of his drums and the bass player makes a couple noises, they're the same. Hmm. Like, they even got those details right. They're mirroring it exactly, and I have a lot of respect for that, I suppose. I can't really see approaching it any other way since it is the climax of the film. But also a question I'm kind of just throwing out there. I haven't really come up with an answer myself. We all can watch that exact performance on YouTube right now. Yeah, that's what I was just thinking. We can see the real Queen do that. And I wonder then what the movie version of Queen delivering that the real version that it's available for all of us to watch whenever we want isn't. So I can just go watch that and I'll be good. Really, honestly. Okay. You know, you you can. I'm so glad you went, though. I kind of like that despite all the negative reviews. This is sort of like, for me, like what Happy Time Murders was, right? We just have these movies that we got to see for ourselves. Sometimes it has to work that way. Yeah, I had to see it. And it sounds like a lot of people felt the same way based on its box office. I think 50 million here domestically. It's opening weekend. If you weren't one of those people, but you're still curious to check out Bohemian Rhapsody. It is out now in wide release. And of course, we'd love to hear your thoughts on the film. Feedback at filmspotting.net. Earlier on the show, Adam, we mostly agreed on Widows. I think we both recommend it. Well, producer Sam and I split on Wildlife, Paul Dano's directorial debut. We'll find out where Adam falls when we review the film next. Stay with us. I want to break free. Call trees in a forest fire? Fuel. You know what they call the trees left up when the fire goes by? They call them the standing dead. 
Sam, our producer, has been a busy man lately. Not only is he turning out weekly editions of the new Film Spotting newsletter, he's been logging some really interesting reviews on Letterboxd. You can find him as Sam Van Hogren. I especially recommend his provocative interpretation of You Were Never Really Here, which he just caught up with. Among Sam's recent reviews, Wildlife, the period family drama directed by Paul Dano from a screenplay he wrote with Zoe Kazan. They're adapting a book by Richard Ford. The film, set in 1960, stars Carrie Mulligan, who you heard talking about forest fires in that clip, and Jake Gyllenhaal as a couple whose marriage starts to crumble after a recent move to Montana. Ed Oxenbold plays Joe, their 14-year-old son, who watches helpless and bewildered. In his two-out-of-four-star review on Letterboxd, Sam had this to say about Oxenbold's Joe. I never really worried for the character. I felt bad for him, but I never worried for him. No doubt there was a range of emotions knocking around that character's head, emotions that were likely made vivid in Ford's book. But as often as Dano searched his eyes for pain and confusion, little came to the surface in Ed Oxenbold's performance. Dear listener, I disagree. In fact, if you go to Sam's review, you'll find that he and I had a little film spotting-esque back and forth in the comment thread. That means we need you, Adam, to break the tie here. Are you closer to my four-star review or Sam's two-star dismissal? And what in particular did you make of Oxenbold's performance? Yeah, I'm definitely way closer to your take, Josh, and certainly closer on Oxenbold's performance as well. I love Sam's provocative responses and reactions in particular to performances. And I was aware of the little back and forth between you guys, but I didn't know which performer Mm. it was in regards to. I was trying to avoid any of this so I could watch the movie with as clear of a mind as possible. And I'm watching it thinking, well, there's no way that they dislike what Carrie Mulligan's doing. It's Carrie Mulligan. She's the best thing in the film. (laughs) I mean, she's Carrie Mulligan. And Jake Gyllenhaal, though, I've had my turns with him where I haven't appreciated his performances. Same with Sam. Overall, I think we both feel that he's a great actor, that he has blossomed into a great actor. And more than that, he's not doing anything so bold in this movie with his choices that I think would be off-putting to anyone. So I'm going, it can't be yeah. can't be either of the two leads. You know what it is about Hall? just real quick, because I realized it with this movie, when a Hall character smiles, it usually means everything except they're happy. Yeah, you know, no, that's he's a great just point. got that that way about him, and he plays that really well here. Yeah, he definitely does. So I was left thinking about the kid, and unlike Sam, I worried about him every single scene, right from the beginning of the film, where I guess you would call what his parents are engaging in as loving bullying. Hmm. They obviously are looking out for him, but between Mulligan's gene character telling him where exactly to put the comma in his schoolwork and the dad talking about how he needs to keep playing on the football team and he's going to study this and study that. You just felt as if at some point this is going to all unravel. And this kid might unravel under the weight of the burdens they are putting on him. And without knowing more about Sam's particular criticisms of the performance, I felt like he was constantly appropriately staggered by and almost paralyzed by his situation and the behavior of his parents as Gyllenhaal's Jerry heads off to go fight these wildfires because he really has nothing else that he can do. And he feels so lost that this is the only answer for him. And in his absence, 
Jean explores a different side of herself. I suppose maybe a more primal side of herself. And he is constantly forced into being the passive observer character, which is why it's so appropriate, of course, that he does, over the course of the film, become a photographer, a photographer's assistant, where he's constantly looking on in these moments and snapping these photos. And I thought the performance just completely reflected that sense of bewilderment, true bewilderment, moment to moment, where you are somehow keenly aware that what's happening is wrong and it's bad and you want it to stop and you would love to make it stop, but you feel like you can't. You feel like you are just powerless. Yeah, and I, I completely understand where Sam is coming from. It's also completely unfair that he's not here to advance his argument, but it is a passive performance. So I can see having that reaction um, where the kid might seem to be at a remove. Mm-hmm. Um, for me, it's just, it is completely of a piece with what the entire movie wanted to do. And his character. Uh, and and for his sure. character. Yeah, you use two perfect words staggered and bewilderment. You know, a lot of films that I've seen which depict uh, a divorce from a kid's point of view, they will become the main character in a sense that they respond in some way. And I think this film is much more interested in just that initial aftershock because this is a kid, even though, you know, he probably did feel pecked on by both parents to a degree. There, there's there's a little tension in the air early mm-hmm. on. But for the most part, there's also that shot where he's watching him all the time. You know, notice how he's Observing. watching everything. Totally. He's an observer. He looks and they have a little flirtatious moment at the sink and he almost breathes a sigh of relief. Yes. I don't know if it's that active, but I, that was my impression of what Oxenbold was doing there because it's like, oh, they, but they're happy, you know, but we're happy. He, he's always having to reassure himself. Yes. When it becomes blatantly obvious that they're not, yeah, the, the kid's world is cratered. Um, and um, there's another scene where he watches his mother uh, do something and the shock on his face. Yeah, it, it, it's that just shock like, is there. It's not purely a passive performance. No, it's it's and and I would say it also builds up. And we don't want to give away the ending because this is one of the best endings of the year for me. It, it just devastated me. But all of that passiveness really makes that moment at the end where he becomes almost a film director in a way. Let's totally. just say it's related to his job at the photo studio. Yes, um, and he takes action. It is much more powerful to me because it is his first step towards doing something. And uh, the devastation lies in the fact of, you know, how effective you think that gesture might be. I'm not familiar with the source material or Richard Ford all that much, whether or not this is what I felt like it was. But I really felt like it was the portrait of an artist as a young man. He doesn't know it yet, but that's what he is becoming over the course of the film. And it is born out of that act of constant observation. And I don't want to spoil it either. We won't spoil it, but it's key to another thing I appreciated about Dano's direction as we build up to that final moment. And you said you were devastated by it. I do want to delineate, were you devastated because you felt like there was something tragic about it or actually just that it was powerful? No, I found it to be a tragic gesture. Because I don't see it as tragic at all. Oh, wow. I see the ending. I see as the hopeful? end. Yes. Oh, wow. So hopeful. So hopeful. That's and interesting. I think, I think why is because of the trajectory we see visually and how that relates directly to this three-way relationship. At the beginning of the film, all of those scenes, every time we see any domestic scene, let's take the dinner table with Mulligan, Gyllenhaal, and... Oxenbold, he is always in the middle. 
that's almost always shot where yeah, they are on opposite right. sides of him. And he is truly in the middle. And guess what? He is emotionally, too. Right. He is always looking to the other as they're having their confrontations. But more than that, they're constantly putting him in the middle. There's a bunch of lines in the film where depending on how they need it to serve them, they will use him or dismiss him. She'll say, he doesn't have an opinion on that. Mm -hmm. How could he know? But then when she wants his support, she'll say, well, Joe will tell you, right? So when it serves her, they'll use him in that way. So he's always in the middle. And that is reflected, as I said, in those scenes early on. And then we get another key moment late in the film between the three of them. And it's interesting that in that domestic vision, there's never a scene where any one of them occupy the same space. It's all individual one shots of the three characters and they are at their most fractured and it all builds up to an end shot that then I think actually when you see that path from where it started and where it goes, there's actual real hope in that because on some level, the whole movie is about these characters realizing who they are as individuals, their limitations, and just that that knowledge. And I think it's all captured there in that final shot, which I also love. I would love for it to be a hopeful ending because that would just be a much a much better experience. I guess the reason I took it as um, tilting more tragic, and one great thing about this film is that you could absolutely read it either way, is related to the fact of all those other portraits earlier he's been involved in of these families who we don't get to know their stories. The only time we see them is when they come to this studio mm. and they're perfectly arranged Um, for him to take their picture. And we just know that they have their stories too, right? That they have their riffs, they have their dissolutions. And he's, what's he doing? He's creating a fantasy for them, for them to pass along to others. So so I have a response, but I don't want to spoil the scene anymore. (laughs) So, well, let's get to some other stuff that's great. And and maybe just some more time on Mulligan because um, the transition she makes, this is is somewhat related to our, what we split on with Widows, right? It's like, can a character show vastly different sides and how can it be all of a piece? Because when we first meet Jeanette, she's very much the, the domesticated wife, right? Her place is in the home. And instantaneously, the morning after Jerry leaves, says he's taking these jobs to fight wildfires, it'll take him out of town, she flips that switch. And that really raw line she gives to Joe when he wakes up and sees her all dressed up, Mm -hmm. she's going to go to town, look for a job. She just looks at him, looking at her, again, him watching and says, you're wasting your life standing there watching me, sweetheart. Uh She even talks differently. Uh, the way and she stands differently and uh, Mulligan does this. Then she brings the two sides together when she starts this affair with the local businessman. Another great performance, by the way, Bill Camp playing this guy. So good. And yeah, he's wonderful. And when she embarks on this and Joe's always there to watch her voice and body are are often brazen and, and flirtatious. Mm-hmm. And at the same time, her face has flashing across it. Instances of freedom, you know, that this is a different new life she's pursuing, but then regret. I mean, it's it's just stellar how much is going on here in a performance that goes up and down and all over the place, but always feels of a piece sure. to who this woman is. Yeah. Talk to your father. Tell him not to act like a fool. I am not being foolish. I put my name on a list. I waited for my chance, and now they finally have a place for me. You don't know anything about fires. You'll get burned up. Well, I've been reading about them. I know enough. <laughs> You've been reading about them? You've been studying up. Don't turn my words on me, Jean. Dad, what's going on? Your father is leaving us to go and fight those wildfires. What? 
Dad, why? Ezra, Jerry, you won't take a job at a grocery store, but you'll go out with a bunch of deadbeats and risk getting killed. You don't have to go there and leave it. What does it pay? What? What does it pay? You're exactly right. I was thinking about it in relation to Widows, too, and how I see it. I see it as a great comparison to the quote-unquote inconsistency of Viola Davis's character. Maybe you felt like it was a little bit more organic or natural or subtle, but that is what I did ultimately love about this Mulligan performance is we're watching someone slowly become untethered from her everyday reality. She really is, in some ways, she never crosses this point, but you could see her and recognize elements of someone breaking down truly on the verge of a breakdown and just the hints of that, the way she physically expresses that or vocally expresses that without ever turning to histrionics. This is not in any way a hysterical performance. No, she doesn't. And that's something I did really appreciate about the movie. Well, and it's complicated by the fact too, that in, in some ways this is a good newfound independence that she's reaching towards, For sure. right? When she's she's finding a, a job as a swim instructor and that's rewarding to her in some ways, is getting a life beyond this house. Mm-hmm. That's a good thing. But there are also those ways, particularly with the Bill Camp character, that it's fracturing um, her son uh, and, and herself in some ways too. Did you catch that the Warren Miller character, I think that's Bill Camp's yeah. character's name, that he as he becomes this interloper in the family while Gyllenhaal's Jerry is away. At the beginning of the film, he has a moment with Gyllenhaal? No. Yeah. I went back on the link I was watching to verify that I wasn't crazy. Gyllenhaal's character is a bit of a searcher. He doesn't really know who he is, but he clearly has some skills as a golfer, and we see him at the beginning of the film working as a caddy. he's the guy with the leg. With the leg. He's working as a caddy. That's how he knows him. That's how he knows him, and that's how he judges his wife for whatever relationship they may be having. And that does inform everything about the way we understand how he perceives the world and also how he perceives this transgression. Because at the beginning of the film, when we meet him working on the job, he has just finished around caddying for these two rich men. Mm -hmm. And of course, they are lower class. And he is in that scene. He's brushing off his shoes. He's down on his hands and knees cleaning his golf shoes. And the guy does say, no, my foot's acting up and he suffers from an injury. It's the same guy in that scene. Yeah, yeah, you're totally right. So you mentioned Dano's work as a director. Uh, What I like about this is it's, it's really confident, but not showy at all. Mm-hmm. It's it's sort of tied to Oxenbold's performance. It's very reserved, but he, he does some nice things in terms of composition. He's also working with a great cinematographer, Diego Garcia, who mm-hmm. worked on Cemetery of Splendor. Uh, but a lot of times he'll he'll make use of items in the background, like you mentioned the golf course. They'll they'll just be the flag on the golf course will be in the background to sort of bring balance or add depth to the frame. Uh, these are. Every shot is interesting in this movie, I guess, is what I would say, whether it's the lighting or the composition. And so that's really promising in terms of Dano taking a relatively small story, um, but giving it a lot of uh, striking visuals. Yeah, I agree. There are a couple of moments where I suppose he tries to be showy. And I use that term loosely because they're not in maybe a Steve McQueen type way. We get at least with a couple shots in a movie like Widows. But there is a scene where we watch as... Joe goes to a bus stop 
And we're not sure exactly what he's going to do, but he might be getting on the bus. He might be running away. And when the bus pulls up, the camera stays on the other side of the bus. And then the bus pulls away and we see he's not there. There's some misdirection. Was yeah. he on the bus? No. The camera pans. I like the patience in that There's scene patience too, there. And there's a lot of patience in general in the film. First of all, I do just love the colors, mm. too, that you kind of get in these 50s settings. But that kind of robin's egg blue, you're the color expert, Josh. I'm <laughs> no, going to try to good. be specific. The, that's good. The formica greens that we get, <laughs> you know, you. the light greens. I I knew I couldn't bring blue and green to the table, but those with those wintry mountain landscapes where they're not majestic exactly, but there is something grand about them. And these small little dramas playing out against that canvas, there's something really striking about that. But you also mentioned his patience as a director, and there were a couple moments in particular. Actually, these both involve Gyllenhaal, one where Gyllenhaal's character leaves and he gets on the back of the truck with the men going to fight the fires and the camera just holds on him for a few extra beats as we see him holding back some tears and some real vulnerability in him as a father in that moment and later when he comes back and he and his son are at a bar and they're having a conversation together and it's becoming a little bit more intense he asks a question of his son and There's a pause. And in that moment, a lot of other directors, a lot of other editors, I think, would have given us that shot reverse shot. We would have wanted to cut to the kid, to Joe in that moment Mm -hmm. to see how he was reacting, how conflicted he is. What is he going to say? What is he feeling? And the camera instead just stays on Gyllenhaal. It lets his reaction play out until he finally then decides to ask again more pointedly to get the answer that he wants. And Dano does use that tool A few times in the movie where someone is looking at something or some action is taking place off screen and he doesn't show us Mm. what that moment is. We just know it's happening and we know it's happening because we're perceiving it by watching Joe's face. Again, the observer. It's not that we're seeing it through his point of view exactly, but we are experiencing it with him in real time. And our only sense of it is his sense of it. When you have performances this good, you can use that technique. <laughs> you brought it all back to ripping on Sam. No, which, no. You know, I'm I would okay never with that. do that, Adam. <laughs> I'm okay with that. Also, I'll give Dano credit. There's a great silent sequence in this film. There's a moment right before I think Gyllenhaal leaves where we see just how fractured the three of them are. And there's no dialogue in this scene. It's just intercutting between the three of them going about their lives. And there's music and the way in that montage that doesn't really feel like a montage. It feels like just the natural order of them going about their lives. But we see how disconnected they are from each other. I thought was really effective. Wildlife is out now in limited release, including here in Chicago, if you see it and have thoughts on our thoughts, you can tell them to us. Feedback at filmspotting.net. That's our show. If you want more film spotting, you can head over to filmspotting.net. That's where you'll find 13 years of reviews, interviews, and top fives in the show archives. At filmspotting.net, you can also vote In our poll, what is the best follow-up to a best picture win? Also, if you haven't already, please do check out our sister program, The Next Picture Show. You can find that wherever you listen to podcasts. Over at filmspotting.net, you can also check out our Filmspotting merch, t-shirts, all that good stuff. It's at filmspotting.net slash shop. Over on Facebook and on Twitter, Adam is at Filmspotting. I'm at Larson on Film. And that newsletter, we're still looking for more subscribers. Go ahead and do that at filmspotting.net slash 
episodes. Out in limited release here this weekend, Boy Erase, the son of a Baptist preacher, is forced to participate in a church-supported gay conversion program. Lucas Hedges stars along with Nicole Kidman and Russell Crowe. It's directed by Joel Edgerton. Hal is out, a documentary about director Hal Ashby, the great director behind Harold and Maude and Being There, and A Private War, starring Rosamund Pike as war correspondent Marie Colvin. You can get Outlaw King via streaming. It stars Chris Pine as Robert. Chris. The Bruce, the best Chris. That was your number one, yeah. right? Was he my number one too? I think he was. <laughs> I think he was. We disagreed on how we ordered them, but I think he was my number one as well. This movie, Outlaw King, comes to us from director David McKenzie, who did Hell or High Water, also starring Pine. That's in limited release and on Netflix. In wide release, Dr. Seuss's The Grinch, an animated remake of The Holiday Seuss Tale. Really? They're, they're making another one? Let's just move on. Okay. Girl in the Spider's Web with Claire Foy as Elizabeth Salander, directed by Fede Alvarez, who did Don't Breathe and the Evil Dead remake, and Overlord, the story of two American soldiers behind enemy lines on D-Day. Next week, we're not going to talk about any of those films. Actually, we are going to share our Golden Brick preview, which does include my conversation with the filmmakers behind the great documentary, Minding the Gap. Film Spotting is produced by Golden Joe Dassault and Sam Van Halgren. Without Sam and Golden Joe, this show wouldn't go. Our production assistant is Andy Mitchell. Thanks also to Candace Griffiths and the listeners of the Film Spotting Advisory Board. And special thanks to everyone at WBEZ Chicago. More information is available at WBEZ.org. Film Spotting has been around a while, but we could always use new listeners. So to help us find them, please give us a rating on Apple Podcasts. A review would help as well. For Film Spotting, I'm Josh Larson. And I'm Adam Kempinar. Thanks for listening. This conversation can serve no purpose anymore. Goodbye. What do I have? I know what I'm leading up to. I just don't know how to get there. Um, Widows is a movie about. <laughs> uh, okay. And, and good, good thing tape doesn't cost any money here as we just let it roll. Um, okay. Film spotting is listener supported. Join the Film Spotting family at filmspottingfamily.com and get access to ad-free episodes, monthly bonus shows, our weekly newsletter, and for the first time, all in one place, the entire Film Spotting archive going back to 2005. That's at filmspottingfamily.com.